Welcome to episode 37 of the RSA Resident and Student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Mitchell Zuxer, medical student at Western University and Western Regional Representative on the RSA Medical Student Council, speaks with Dr. Michael Winters, one of the AAEM Written Board Review Course Directors and a speaker at several past AAEM scientific assemblies. Today, Mr. Zexer and Dr. Winters discuss resuscitating the obese patient. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Mitchell Zexer, and I'm the Vice Chair of Education for the AAEM RSA Education Committee. And I'm very honored to have the opportunity to sit with Dr. Michael Winters. He is the Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, the Director of the Combined EMIM Residency Program, Founder and Co-Director of the Combined EMIM Crit Care Program, and the Director of Critical Care Education. But that's not it. He's also won numerous awards for teaching for both ASEP and AAEM, Not to mention, he's the editor-in-chief of the Emergency Department Resuscitation of Critical Care, which is a popular EM Crit Care textbook. And last but not least, he's receiving the Joe Lex Educator of the Year Award from AEM. And I'm very honored to have you here. How are you? Thanks so much, Mitchell, for having me on the podcast. It's really a privilege and a pleasure to be speaking with you this morning. Well, today I think we're going to talk about a pretty important topic, which is resuscitation of the obese patient. Some of the pearls we're going to talk about are RSI pearls, medication pearls, mechanical ventilation pearls, and some things that we kind of overlook as well. So Dr. Winters, what are some things that you think about as you get a call that there's a patient that's crashing and they happen to be obese? So this is a a very timely topic because when you look at statistics across the nation, certainly the incidence of obesity is rising across the U.S. There are some states currently that have over 35% of the population considered obese. Now, we would classify obesity, we use BMI. And when you have a BMI over 30, in many of these states, we have citizens with BMIs well over 40. So something that we would refer to as morbidly obese. And now there's even a super obese category where BMIs are above 50. This is important to talk about because there are a few twists that, and things that you want to do differently when the obese patient comes in critically ill. They have altered physiology, and that altered physiology is important to take into account when you resuscitate these patients because there are some things that, once again, we should do differently. Now, when we get the pre-hospital notification or we have a morbidly obese patient who's going south in the ED, the few pearls that I think are important to talk about that I I thought would be informative for this discussion, deal with some airway or RSI pearls. Then once you get those patients intubated, what things do you need to do differently on the mechanical ventilator? And then regardless of whether they're crashing or critically ill, what things do we need to alter when we're dosing medications in the obese patient? So I think those three areas would provide some important teaching pearls and resuscitation pearls for many of us out there who care for these patients on a day in and day out basis. Great. Well, so let's hear it. All right, so in terms of rapid sequence intubation, let's just say you've got a critically ill patient who comes in, they're in respiratory distress, they do have a very high BMI. 
and you need to intubate them. You've made the decision that you're going to perform RSI. A few important things from an anatomic standpoint, and this makes sense, they've got excess cervical fat. They've got a large tongue. Overall, that makes for a fairly constricted glottic opening. And that excess or redundant tissue from an anatomical standpoint increases the likelihood that when you go to perform RSI, those tissues will cause collapse of the oropharynx. So anatomically, you're going to have a little bit more narrow airway. Perhaps more importantly, there are a number of physiologic changes in the obese patient that we'll get into momentarily, but the take-home message is these patients have a very decreased cardiopulmonary reserve. Not only do they have decreased cardiopulmonary reserve, with that adipose tissue in the stomach, it pushes up on the diaphragm. So when you go to perform pre-oxygenation and do your RSI, you've got to remember that these patients will critically and quickly desaturate. They will have a rapid onset of hypoxemia. So let's just say you or I collapsed now. We needed to be intubated. If we had to go right to intubating, you and I would probably have an apnea time before we reached a critical desaturation threshold of, of just a few minutes. If we had time and we adequately pre-oxygenated you or myself, we'd have probably a safe apnea time of around six or seven minutes before we started to reach that 88 or 90% threshold on our saturations. The morbidly obese patient, even before they're challenged with critical illness, has a safe apnea time with adequate pre-oxygenation around three to four minutes. And when they become sick, we've got about 60 to 90 seconds with adequate pre-oxygenation to safely get that endotracheal tube in. So just remember they've got really no cardiopulmonary reserve. So how do we improve pre-oxygenation? We are pre-oxygenating these patients or any patient that we're performing RSI in to provide us with a safe apnea time so we can secure the endotracheal tube without that patient becoming hypoxemic, without them sustaining a peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Some pearls for the obese patient, when you go to pre-oxygenate them, sit them up. So rather than have them in a supine position, really sit them up. This helps to decrease their overall airflow limitations. It helps to limit air trapping along with atelectasis. So sit them up to pre-oxygenate them. You can certainly use non-rebreather at flush rate, if that's all you have. You can use a bag valve mask with a peep valve also to help And while the evidence is mixed and controversial over the last year or two with regards to apneic oxygenation, I do feel that that's a good modality, especially in the obese patient, and you can consider the use of high-flow nasal cannula. Now, importantly, when you're trying to adequately pre-oxygenate the obese patient and denitrogenate their lungs, there is some use and literature on on non-invasive ventilation, CPAP versus BiPAP. Now, the literature between those two modalities is a little bit mixed, and the preponderance of what we have now really deals with CPAP in terms of pre-oxygenating the obese patient. It helps to, once again, increase that safe apnea time, but the pearl you want to remember is if you're going to use CPAP, you really have to have at least 5, 10 or so minutes for them to receive this therapy doesn't do much good if you've only got 60 seconds, 120 seconds. That's not going to be as beneficial as if you have about 10 minutes of CPAP. The other pearl to remember is that you want to have or use a CPAP setting a little bit higher, so probably about 10 centimeters of water. So in terms of pre-oxygenation, 
sitting them up, using the methods that you would normally use, and really also considering non-invasive ventilation with CPAP at about 10 centimeters for about 10 minutes to adequately denitrogenate and give you a safe apnea time. Probably the most important pearl with respect to intubating the obese patient is positioning them appropriately. So this absolutely isn't the patient you want to intubate in a completely supine position. You want to get the head of the bed up to about 25 to 30 degrees. Currently, we have stretchers that will simply incline to about that 25 to 30 degree. If you're at a place where you're just challenged from a resource standpoint, you can put a lot of blankets underneath someone to get the head of the bed up. But what you want to envision is their external auditory canal is in line with their sternal notch. That's the optimal intubating condition or position for the obese patient. Just a few other RSI pearls. Be very careful about dosing your RSI medications. Specifically, there's some literature to say that we woefully either underdose our sedative or underdose our paralytic, which provides us with very suboptimal intubating conditions. So ask yourself, many of us use etomidate or ketamine for a sedative. Do you know whether that's based upon total body weight or ideal body weight? As it turns out, etomidate is based upon total body weight, whereas ketamine is ideal body weight. With respect to your paralytics, do you know how succinylcholine is dosed? Is it total body weight or is it ideal versus the non-depolarizing agents such as rocuronium? Well, remember, sucks is total body weight versus rocuronium that is ideal body weight. So big RSI pearls, once again, what are the take-home things that I think are, are useful? Remember, these patients have no cardiopulmonary reserve. Anticipate that they will desaturate very quickly. Pre-oxygenate them in a sitting up type of position, and if you have the ability, use CPAP if needed. I mean, if you're able to obtain 100% saturations, the patient isn't an extremist, no need to necessarily always put CPAP on. But if you're struggling with oxygen saturations and getting a safe apnea time, really reach for CPAP or the non-invasive ventilation. Get the head of the bed up so their ear external auditory canal is in line with their sternal notch, and then be sure, please, to dose your RSI medications appropriately. Great. It's pretty direct and very succinct, so thank you so much for that. So we have the patient intubated, and now what? Now what? So now the RT is looking at us wondering what settings we want. And, and there are some important pearls and changes to mechanically ventilating the obese patient in contrast to the other patients you would intubate and then subsequently mechanically ventilate. A few important obesity-related changes with the pulmonary system. I think it's just important to remember that, in essence, all of their lung volumes are decreased. The largest decrease is in the functional residual capacity, or the FRC. That decreases by on the order of 3 to 5% for every unit increase in BMI. But in the end, all of these lower lung volumes result in intrapulmonary shunting in the obese patient at baseline. With these lower lung volumes, that decreases lung compliance. And as you would expect, there's a whole lot of adipose tissue on the chest wall that decreases chest wall compliance. This requires the obese patient to increase the work of breathing just for normal tidal volume breathing. So they've got intrapulmonary shunting, increased work of breathing. The other thing they have is a VQ mismatch at baseline. In other words, in terms of the obese patient, the upper lung zones 
tend to be preferentially aerated or ventilated, whereas the lower lung zones tend to be predominantly perfused. So at baseline, they've got a VQ mismatch, intrapulmonary shunting, increased work of breathing. In fact, their respiratory muscles are consuming anywhere up to five times the amount of O2 that non-obese patients would have. So they'd have that markedly decreased endurance of their respiratory system. Now, in terms of intubating and putting these patients on the ventilator, literature is pretty clear that we are choosing the wrong tidal volume. And we do want to set this a lower tidal volume strategy, much like we do with our non-obese patients. But please, please, please remember that tidal volume is based on ideal body weight. It is not total body weight. These patients have the same size lungs as non-obese patients. And there, there's some literature out there in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, American Journal of Emergency Medicine, to say that we are ventilating a large percentage of obese patients with too high tidal volume. Now, in terms of setting the respiratory rate on the ventilator, this is another pearl to take home. Because of that increased work of breathing, they are also generating more CO2. So when you look at it, obese patients tend to have a higher spontaneous respiratory rate than non-obese patients. So as where you or I may be breathing 10 or 12 breaths per minute, the obese patient at baseline is somewhere on the order of about 15 to 20. And you need to take that into account when you set the respiratory rate on the ventilator. So it's going to be a little higher respiratory rate. And then the other thing to take note is PEEP. Because these patients have lower lung volumes, overall, you want to use a higher PEEP setting than you're used to using in the non-obese patient. So a lot of times you reflexively shout out five of PEEP. Well, in the obese patient, because of the collapse of smaller airways, you're really going to set it higher at about 10 to 15 centimeters of water. And finally, when you're ventilating these patients, put them in a reverse Trendelenburg position. If you have the obese patient in the supine position, that leads to a lot of collapse of regional lung segments and can impair your ability to mechanically ventilate them. So if you put them in a reverse Trendelenburg position, that's been shown that they can pull higher tidal volumes and a lower spontaneous respiratory rate. So big ventilation pearls, be sure to set your tidal volume on ideal body weight, going to set it a little higher respiratory rate because of that baseline tachypnea that they have, and then a higher PEEP to start off with, about 10 to 15 centimeters of water, and then put them in a reverse Trendelenburg position. So lastly, I just wanted to ask, do you have any tips of the trade on how to keep your team safe? These patients have a higher body habitus. It makes things just a little bit more difficult, and some, it's maybe something that we overlook. Is there anything you do to keep us safe so we can provide the best care we can for our patients? It's a great question, and I think knowing these pearls will help keep patients safe along with us providing the right care. I think the big take-home message is you want to remember that the obese patient has a number of physiologic changes that impact our resuscitation. In addition to what we've talked about from an airway and mechanical ventilation and, and pulmonary system, one area of harm that we want to avoid is also in medication dosing. Understand that obesity will change a whole lot of things. It alters their volume of distribution of medications. It alters their clearance. Uh, it increases their secretion. So we often under or overdose medications in the obese patient. So paying attention as to whether they're weight-based, 
how we should dose key medicines such as antibiotics in the setting of sepsis, such as sedatives for patients who are on ventilators, anticoagulants, cardiac meds, all of those are affected by obesity. So that's one area of patient safety that we want to pay attention to. Um, This is a very unique type of patient population. So just keeping in mind that there are a number of physiologic changes and knowing that ahead of time when you go in to assess these patients really puts you already at an advantage at providing safe and efficient care. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Winters. Just as a recap for our listeners, remember, sit up your patient. Don't let them be supine. They have decreased airflow, so you need to pre-oxygenate them and try to give them CPAP for at least 10 minutes if you can at 10 centimeters of water. When you're about to intubate your patient, try to get the head of the bed so that their external auditory canal is in line with their sternal notch. Remember medications. Atomidate is total body weight. Sucks is total body weight. Ketamine is ideal body weight, and so is rocuronium. And lastly, don't forget when you're putting them on the vent, you may have to get them at a higher respiratory rate and use a higher PEEP of 10 to 15, not the normal 5 that we usually jump to. Other physiological things, I will write down in the notes, and I'll give a quick summary. And be sure to look out for more podcasts from AAM from the Scientific Assembly. Thank you so much, Dr. Winters. Thanks so much, Mitchell. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And lastly, be sure to check out Dr. Winters' own podcast at www.criticalcarenem.com. I'll write that in the show notes at the bottom, along with the summary of everything that we talked about. So just in case you want to have a quick peek, you'll have that information there. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.